0: I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Yasmin Ungo is the author of Her Name is Night and a first-generation Ghanaian-American, currently residing in South Carolina with her family. She has served in education for nearly 20 years and works as a developmental editor. Yasmin received the 2020 Eleanor Bland Crime Fiction Writers of Color Award from Sisters in Crime and is a member of numerous crime, mystery, and thriller organizations like Sisters in Crime, Crime Writers of Color, and International Thriller Writers. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you. You have worked in education and Mm -hmm. as a developmental editor. What was it that pushed you to write that first novel? I have always been a writer. I guess
1: that's what a lot of writers say, but I have since I was young. It was what entertained me. My mother worked multiple jobs at once, and so I had to have something to entertain myself. And I was what you would call back then a latchkey kid. Reading was something that I absolutely loved. And I loved the way that reading took me to all these different places. I could just totally like leave my life and and be totally enveloped into these worlds. And so I was like, man, I would love to write something that did something like that for someone else, you know, that they could just fall into my world and be captivated by my characters and the story and things like that. So I started to write, that was probably in middle school, that I really, really started. And then it just never stopped since then.
0: Good. That was a good thing for you to do because yeah. all these <laughs> book covers behind you. You're publishing the next installment of the Night series. Would you tell us a little bit about It Ends With Night?
1: Sure. So It Ends With Night is the third of the trilogy. It's the one that's in the middle in bright yellow, and it just came out on the 5th, September 5th. So it is about Nina. At this point of her career, she is put in this different position of leadership that she really doesn't want to be. In She came across it because of some hard decisions that she had to make in the second book, the one in green. And so now she's in this leadership position that she's never wanted to be in. She is by trade an assassin, the elite assassin of the tribe. So she is the head of the dispatch team. But now she becomes the head of network, which is the team that oversees dispatch, does all of their operations for the tribe. So she is sent to Tanzania to be a liaison and help negotiate terms for a mining referendum that they are thinking about uh, putting in place. She's got to go through all these different challenges in a political nature. It's a different kind of mission for her. And so her having to overcome the obstacles of this different kind of mission and learn more about how she can move in this world is what the third one's about.
0: For listeners who maybe aren't as tuned in to your Ghanaian roots, were you able to channel those in your writing?
1: Oh yeah, sure. So my Ghanaian roots is is what I grew up with. I am Ghanaian American. So I can honestly say that I lived in two worlds, an American world by day when I'm in school with all my American friends and then Ghanaian world by night and weekend when I'm with my mom and we're not eating burgers and fries, we're eating rice and stew and and things like that. That's how I've always lived. My parents immigrated here to go to college at Howard University. And so education was very important to them. Raising a daughter who, was both Ghanaian, but then also very American because everybody wants to come and have like the American dream or whatever. Mm -hmm. So when I started thinking about Nina Knight and what she was going to be doing and how I was going to present her, That was later in life, after I've gone through all those rebellious stages of I don't want to, you know, be a Ghanaian. I want to be more American, and so I'm very, you know, Americanized and and losing the language that I had grown up knowing and and things like that. I realized that when my father passed, that I had to really hold on to my culture. It was a wonderful culture, and that I would like to keep it prominent in my life for me and for my kids and, and theirs when they have them. And so I set out to make. My lead, a Ghanaian woman, doing all of these things that nobody would really expect of a woman, much less a Ghanaian woman, an immigrant to do. And I wanted to highlight some of our customs, our foods, some of the dialects that we speak and and the clothing, how we're very invested and loyal in family and and things like that. And so I just really wanted to bring those things that I cherish, the, the relationships that we develop with family. I really wanted to bring those to light in my writing.
0: And I'm sure your readers will appreciate that. The beauty of novels show us how different families exist and their culture and customs.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: The New York Times did a write-up about They Come at Night, one of the novels in your series. The Times said a main character who's a fearsome assassin for a secretive and elite government agency. That's pretty standard thriller fare. But there's nothing ho-hum about Nina Knight, the killer at heart of Yasmin Ingo's They Come at Night. What was it like seeing your novel showcased in the New York Times?
1: I mean, it's still hard to believe because I really didn't think she would ever get there. I mean, I know that she was definitely worthy of. You never know, especially when you're writing something that is so grounded in a different culture, if Americans would understand and would see beyond, you know, the difference to be able to put yourself in Nina's position and see through her eyes and get Yeah, she's a killer. Yeah, she works for this organization that eliminates their opponents, but they're out for good in their eyes to uplift the African people and the continent. But like that there's more to Nia. She has layers to her, you know, and... She's not just an assassin and she doesn't kill for pleasure. It's just a job. Those are the things that I really wanted to present with that character. That was the challenge that I gave myself when I wrote the very first book was I I know that I'm going to make her an assassin. I know that I'm going to put her in a position where it's very hard to root for someone who goes out to kill on purpose. So how do I do that? That's bringing in her humanity. That's showing you how she became this assassin, what happened to her, how she survived it. So these three books, this whole trilogy is really an ode to survivors, right? And it doesn't have to be something huge. All of us deal with some sort of trauma, some sort of adversity in our life, and we survive it. And so how does this one person survive these things that happen to her? And how does she learn to celebrate you know, the life that she has? How does she fix her life the way that she wants it to be? after everything that she knew was taken from her. And those are the things that I wanted to explore. And that's what I hoped and prayed that the reader would get aside from, oh, she just goes and she kills, you know, and it's violent and all this other stuff. Sure, there's that but that there's also a person behind all of this who's really just trying to figure things out and to survive and remold her life the way she wants it to be after all of this time. And so when that review came and it was like, oh, they get it. You know, they see more than just the typical assassin spy espionage book that there is like some meat and some substance to this character that you really want to kind of get into and figure out how she works. I was like, yes. You know, I was really happy.
0: That is huge. (laughs) Did you intend for this to be? a series when you began?
1: Initially, I did not. It was going to be just the one and done with Her Name is Night. I put everything that I had into it. And that was before I was agented and definitely before I had a deal. But as I was writing it, even when I ended it, I was a little wistful because I was like, there's so much more of Nina that I could write. I wish it could you know, go on. But I didn't think that agents, when I was shopping around, would want to hear, this is the first of a trilogy that usually can give them pause. When I got my agent and she said, well, how about you consider expanding it out and we can offer that to editors, I was like, well, all right, yeah, okay. I'll do that. Um, and we think about
0: this, yes. I'm like, yeah,
1: sure, I'll do that. You know, it gives me a chance to be in this world a little bit longer, this world that I love. And the characters, I love them all, even the villains, because I take such time with them as well. And so, yeah, that's when she said, you know, consider it. And I was like, absolutely, I will. And so I was lucky. My publisher also thought that it was something that should be spread out as well.
0: That's a huge compliment to your writing. (laughs) Thank you. How does one conduct research about a Character who's fired
1: assassin. Oh, that's a good question. If I told you, <laughs> I'd have to come find you, Chris. Kill you. <laughs> and when it comes to that, that's really something with imagination, right? And really like looking up different private and elite tactical forces we might have in the military and think, okay, if they have this certain kind of code, does this other organization have a code? So you will see that when you're reading her the teams that she's in is very set up like militaristic style. You know, they have a team and they're very military because that's kind of where I looked as my guide. And because they're not people who just go and just kill just to be, they're not mercenaries. They have a code. So therefore they go by that standard. They just are not in a government organization. So they're, you know, something like black ops. So looking at that and talking to friends who are in law enforcement to help me with, you know, uh, weaponry and things like that. And talking to a friend who is. In into uh, martial arts so that she can help me with like hand-to-hand combat and fight scenes. So I talk to a lot of people, a lot of online research, a lot of movies I'll watch for inspiration of how I might envision something and, and YouTube and things like that. I'm an English teacher, so we do the research. We know about some research. We teach it.
0: <laughs> ma'am. You've written three books about a hired gun. Mm-hmm. So- Is your family a little nervous about, like, do they not want to make you mad?
1: No, My husband jokes a lot. And if I get annoyed with him, he's like, are you going to kill me in a book? Really? I don't do that. I don't envision someone and be like, I'm just going to like really go at them in the book. I think they, they think it's cool, but like now they're used to it. And my husband too, I think they get a kick out of. Hearing responses like if they'll go to a signing with me or whatever, they'll get a kick out of that. My mom, on the other hand, because she is Ghanaian, we're Catholic, and she's very you know she's very religious and spiritual, and she just couldn't really, and she still hasn't like gotten with it. She doesn't understand why she has to be an assassin. She thinks now everybody will think all oh, Ghanaians are assassins, and I'm like, it doesn't work like that. She thinks that I have committed some sin, and and she's jokingly though I think she's a little serious. She said that you know she asked God to forgive me, so. Hey, I, I don't know. I think that's, uh, that's just my mom, <laughs> who I love.
0: If we see your mom holding a rosary, we'll know what she's praying about.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. You know, she's praying over me and asking for forgiveness for me. So just <laughs> please, everybody, tell her that I have been forgiven. It's by God that I have the talent. So, you know, Amen. that's what I try to lead with.
0: <laughs> Along the way, while you were writing the series, did your process change at all? The first book, you know, I didn't have an agent or anybody
1: looking at it. It was just me. My family didn't even know I was writing it. So I was really writing for me and and I didn't have time restraints and I could just put everything in it. For the subsequent books, there are deadlines. You have to kind of tell them where you want to go with the books and, and things like that. So I really had to try to train myself to write within deadlines and i can't go a whole week and not do something and i'll just be thinking like i did for the first one i have to like really stick to a schedule i'm still working on that because i'm the worst at schedules and things but i'm trying to really like keep up the pace and ascribe to some sort of routine that will help me get the things done quickly
0: do you do page counts or word count what is your measuring stick what you've done for the day Sure. So, um, use
1: Scrivener. That's where I pretty much draft in because I like the target counts. I like to know what my word goal is, what I need to do in the day, and then it makes me feel good if it's early out and it's only like, oh, you only need to write like 700 words. I'm like, oh, I can knock that out quickly. But then when it gets close to the time and it's telling me, oh, you've got like 1500, 2000 words, then I start to get nervous. So, I try to write enough so that it stays under that thousand mark. And I don't feel like I'm being frenetic, but that really guides me. I do my drafting there and I do all of my editing and and polishing and stuff in Word.
0: Are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Do you know what your story is going to look like before you begin? Yeah, I have a pretty good idea
1: of how I want the overall ending to be, like who's going to make it to the end, but I don't know all the details specifically While So I guess I would be what, what they like to call pantser, but, you know, I like to call it like just a natural progression and discovery of things uh, because I feel like I don't fly by the seat of my pants. I'm just not writing willy nilly. I think about what I'm writing a lot before I start to write it. And I won't start until I really know the character well enough to be able to tell that story. That's why I don't like quite like that word because it's not really just going off free will. It is some sort of, I guess, plotting in my head. It's just not on paper, but I'm definitely not a plotter because if I thought about everything and wrote it down, then it would be like the stories already told to me. It'd be boring and I wouldn't feel that natural discovery of what this story is going to be and what this character is going to do in this particular situation that I like to have when I'm writing. So when a reader is reading something that I've written, know that I too have just discovered this thing as you have discovered it. We discovered it maybe not together, but we went down the same journey.
0: That's an important point you're making. I found that when I tried to do a really tight outline it took all the fun out of it. You know, that curiosity. Mm-hmm. And when you're writing it, you don't have that curiosity anymore. It's like, who wants to hear the story if I don't want to write it? Yep. So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, but yet I hear that when you do suspend, there is some plotting that is necessary because you've got to know, you know, where you're going to go with with that story for it to wind up where it's supposed to go. With romance, other genres, there's a little bit more of a prescription to it Mm -hmm. and with suspense.
1: Yeah, there are because you got to put some twists and reversals, you know, and I think that's something I can go back over and see. It's easier for me to write it through. And if I feel then when I've read it, something's missing, maybe I need to like turn something up, then I can fix it. Then if I even think about it ahead of time, Oh, this is the thing that's going to happen. Then that also is like, I've revealed too much to myself. And so now I'm working towards that reveal or whatever. And it tends to fall flat for me. And I feel like it's not something that is organic because I've thought about it too much. I probably have overthought it. So I try to like write without overthinking those, you know, particulars, and then I'll go back. And then also my developmental editors and things like that will, will help me in those areas that that I might've missed because, you know, I was doing like the big picture stuff.
0: From what I understand, go through and write your first draft. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at it to see what's missing as a developmental editor, are you able to see with objectivity when it's your own? It's definitely harder to do that. I would probably not go back into it immediately
1: because I need it to like, cleanse from me. And then when I open it up with a whole new set of eyes again, then I can find something. I'm like, oh yeah, this didn't work for myself. I can be very critical of myself. So I like to give it to others and get their feedback and see, you know, what they're thinking. With the development editor that my publisher gives me, I will usually wait until I get their feedback and I take it all in. Because I'm used to being an editor myself, because you know, that has been my career in teaching others to write and how to give feedback and how to receive feedback, then I think that I work well with that whole process because I know that now I've written it, the book isn't for me. We have to make it work for the reader. And so that's what I go in thinking when it comes to edits and and things like that. And I definitely wouldn't want anyone to edit me in a way that I wouldn't edit someone else. So I'm careful about my words because it's all in how you present something, right? That's how someone will receive it. So I try to be careful when I'm giving feedback and I hope that they're careful when they're giving feedback to me because it's very easy to make us writers. We're very, we're very sensitive and it's very easy (laughs) To, to tell us something and you don't mean it that way, but we'll take it that way and it will devastate us and we'll never pick up another like pen or, or type another word, you know, and we'll just obsess over that. So, so yeah, it's helped me. Being a developmental editor has really made me open, you know, to working with others even more so, and and receiving all the different points of view and figuring out if that works with my story or if it doesn't, and then let's talk about why it may or may not, and then come up with maybe something else that works a little better.
0: It sounds like you have a good relationship with your editor as well.
1: I, I try to, I try to, yeah,
0: get so close to our manuscripts, and it's hard to take that feedback. And I remember Dr. Yui. Uh, Stender, who's an agent, he spoke to us at a conference in Wisconsin. Got that real thick German accent. These are not <laughs> your babies. Your manuscript is not your baby. And I'm like, yes, yeah, <laughs> get to hell if it, <laughs> it feels like it is. so hard. You, it is. You put so much into it. You get those rejections. It's like, oh, really?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those rejections like, are hard. Rejections are very hard. And we know that they don't have a lot of time to, to give us you know, real deep, meaningful feedback. But if you don't really know what it is that has made you, you know, be rejected, I don't know that that's helpful either, because we all want to do better. And if you can't fix what you don't know, then how do you fix it for the next person? So I feel like, you know, I don't know how agents and and publishers can, can go through that, I guess, mostly agents, because when you're by the publisher's time, your agent can kind of help you with what may or may not be working. But as uh, people who are querying agents, I know agents get a whole lot in their slush pile. But then I think also they should be mindful of the kind of feedback. If you're rejecting, you got to give somebody a little bit of a nugget to let them know, you know, what it is that may not be working so that they can take another look. If it's too vague, then, you know, what do we do? We can't do anything. And that builds frustration. You can't fix what you don't know. So I don't, it's a lot. It is a lot, but he's right in the sense that it's not your baby. I like to think of my books as I'm like their surrogate mother. So I'm, (laughs) I'm baking you in my belly or whatever, in my head. And then I'm going to give you to your parent afterwards. And and so therefore it helps me to think this is like a surrogacy. I'm just... And the
0: editor's going to help raise the baby.
1: Exactly. They're going to
0: raise it. And then we're going to like give it to all the parents of the world. <laughs> <laughs> when you get a rejection that actually had any little thing, boy, I want to save that. Yes, I'm disappointed, but they took the time to read, which that's a good thing. That means mm-hmm. it was good enough for them to try it. And Mm -hmm. then they give you that feedback. Mm -hmm. That feedback is gold.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's gold.
0: You have a large family. And Mm. with that, I suppose, many responsibilities. So how do you structure your day? I kick everybody out of the house. (laughs) I said, get out of
1: here. No. <laughs> I, I, I do look forward to the school year because then everyone is at work. Our kids are senior in high school and then in college. But, you know, those summers are the worst because then that's when everyone is here. So when they finally go, you know, to their respective areas and, and I do have to spend some time like going through email. If I'm on a tight deadline, I try to write. I write the best in the morning and day. Nighttime, I'm a little tired. My brain has worked all day. And so all I want to do is veg out, you know, in front of the TV. So I really try to get my writing in as early as possible, you know, in the morning. Not at 5 a.m. because I'm not a 5 a.m. writer, though I really wish I could be. And then try to get the logistical things, because that's one thing that I learned once becoming published is, you know, writing is a business and you still have to like tend to the interviews, which are fantastic and schedule things and stuff like that. So it's better for me if I get all the creative stuff done first and then I can do logistical stuff and then I can just watch TV.
0: Which writers call that research? Exactly. It's a lot of research I do. I research research all night long. (laughs) What has writing taught you about yourself?
1: What has writing taught me about myself? (laughs) That's a good
0: question. Uh,
1: Writing has taught me that I need it to feel settled. I think that when I haven't written and haven't written in a good amount, right, then I'm like unsettled. It's like when you are really addicted to like coke like the soda, not the drug. And <laughs> and you haven't had it in a while, you need that caffeine. And so you might get jittery and you might get crabby or whatever. And then when you get your your soda, you're like, okay. And so that's what writing is to me. So I realized that I need it to be able to sort through whatever I'm feeling at the moment, whatever I'm thinking. I also realized that it's something that other people can connect with. And that's important that people actually find value in it. So it's not just me, but others as well. And it's just fun to write, to read, you know, to just be in that literary world. I enjoy it. I'm so glad to be in it and thankful I have the opportunities that I have. Yeah.
0: Well, what is next for you? Yeah. What's
1: next is I'm working on my fourth book, which is a standalone. It's a little veer away from like the action thriller, but it's still like a suspense thriller. So more psychological. So I got to like finish that. And then after that, I have ideas for my next books, but I just got to decide what specifically I want to write next. But I'm excited because it's always fun trying to decide what is it that I'm going to write until I start to write it. And then I'm like, why did I choose this?
0: And then you wonder, did I go in the wrong direction? Did I, did I choose, did I choose poorly? And then once you get rolling, it's like, okay, I'm in. But yeah, exactly. It's it's almost like you get on a bike and you have to choose a lane. And Mm -hmm. the whole time you're on your bike, you keep looking back behind you. Like, wait, maybe I should, is it too late to turn back? (laughs) Yep.
1: There's a lot of doubt, a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of all these things. But then once it's done, then you're just like, Ooh, like, wow, this was a ride, but I wouldn't change it. Even though during the ride, you're like, I want to change it. I want off this thing. I can't stand it. You know, you've got all these thoughts going on.
0: Are you reading anything fun right now?
1: I'm reading something by Julie Bart. It's called Writing Retreat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just started that, and it's really enjoyable. And I like the premise of it. And it just depends on what I feel like at the moment. I finished a YA called The King is Dead. Long live. The Scandal. That one is really interesting because it's about like the first Black king who's put on England's throne and he's like biracial, but he's the first, you know, person of color to be a king. And so how is that going to play out? I thought that was really, really interesting. And YA,
0: because the format's different and usually they're shorter books, not always, but usually it makes you have to boil things down a little tighter Whatever genre you write, I think you can learn from, mm-hmm. from YA. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for new writers?
1: Even if you feel like you're not good enough, you've got that imposter syndrome that you'll never get it or whatever. You start to doubt yourself. I think always keep writing. Always think there's just this one more thing because that's definitely what I did when I was receiving all those rejections that we were talking about. And I thought that I was going to quit. I nearly quit because I just thought maybe they know something that I don't, but I didn't. I tried one more thing, and that thing was what got me the award that I won with Eleanor Taylor Bland and started things rolling. And so even when you're at the cusp of quitting, even if you have to take a break, you can take a break, but you pick it back up. If it's truly something you love and it's something that you can't live without, you just keep doing it and success will find you. It may not be what you envisioned, but it's gonna be a success that is good for you. And even if you complete something, that's a success. So you have to find the success and the joy in whatever you're doing.
0: Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. To learn more, visit yasminungo.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.